Good morning, church. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6. And as you're doing that, would you just uh, let this team know how much you appreciate them? They're in the back. They can hear us. But just put your hands together as they lead us this morning to focus on King Jesus, who is our only hope this morning. So I hope you're encouraged and challenged like I was, just singing those great truths uh, from Scripture this morning. So Acts chapter 6 Uh, We're continuing in this series as we walk through the book of Acts and are challenged as individuals and challenged as a church family. And if you need a copy of God's Word, there should be one there in front of you, a paperback copy, and that's our gift to you. If you need a Bible, you can uh, certainly take that home with you. Uh, But we're going to land in Acts chapter 6. I want to take just a minute and set up what we're going to be looking at this morning because I think it's going to be really, even coming out of the first service and some things we talked about, some some things really challenging and practical for us as a local church family here called Tri-Cities Baptist Church. Now, before we jump in, let me set it up this way a little bit. And at the risk of sounding out of touch, I'm I'm going to tell an illustration about Mother's Day. Listen, I know it's Father's Day, all right, but the illustration fits a little bit better because it's about Mother's Day. So I want to go back to uh, 1998 in the month of April. That was the year that Jennifer and I uh, became parents for the very first time. And our son, Michael Joshua, was born. We were living in Memphis. We were in seminary there. And you can imagine the joy of being first-time parents and the joy of my wife of being a, a mom for the very first time. Fast forward about three or four weeks, you come to the month of May, and we come to our very first Mother's Day. My wife, all the excitement and the joy that there is of being a first-time mom. Now, I've just got to own it and be honest, as kind of a young dad and a, uh, even a young husband, we'd only been married about three years at that point, I, in, in a month's time, I had... <laughs> Maybe some of you guys can relate to this and make me feel better about myself. I don't know. But I had not quite made the transition going into Mother's Day that Mother's Day was not about my mom. (laughs) Yeah, that's trouble, right? You see it coming. So I had not quite looked at my wife of now about three years and gone into Mother's Day thinking, you know, we're going to celebrate the fact that she's a new mom. So Mother's Day comes around and I'm working at a church there in Memphis. I work at Kirby Woods Baptist Church. And Jennifer and I, we, we drove some ladies to church, and we celebrated Mother's Day for them. We got them to church, and I'm just, you know, celebrating that they're moms. And at church, I stand up in front of the whole church, and I'm honoring the moms there. And we get home that afternoon. Of course, my mom's eight hours away, and we call her and just celebrating Mother's Day. And the day goes on, and the day goes on. And then we get to the end of the day. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And I'm, I think I'm getting ready for bed, and my wife's getting ready for bed. And guess, guess who went the entire whole day of my wife's first Mother's Day and didn't even acknowledge that it was Mother's Day? Husband of the year, right here, the whole day. So we get to the end of the day, and my wife, in her very calm, kind, loving voice. Now listen, I... I I'm going to quote what she said because it has been burned in my mind for 19 years. I'm not joking. I even went back to her this morning and said, honey, make sure I'm quoting you right. And she said, you got it right. That's exactly what I said. End of the day, I have blown it. And my wife, as we're getting ready for bed, very calmly said this, sweetheart, 
she may have said sweetheart, I'm not sure. She said, next year on Mother's Day, could you remember that I'm a mother too? Now, now guys, I don't know how you rate your epic fails as a husband. That was an epic fail for me. Staggering. How do you come up out of that? I mean, how do you rescue that? I had no idea what to do. Of course, I tried to apologize, and I tried to figure out a way to make it right. And even a couple hours, I mean, I'm laying in bed. I'm just thinking, I blew this. My wife finally goes to sleep. It's almost midnight now. I'm still awake. And I think, I'm going to make it right at midnight, right? Mother's Day's over. So I literally get in my car. I go to Kroger, the only place open. And all the Mother's Day flowers have been taken down, and I find somebody that works in Kroger. I say, do you have anything here that even resembles a Mother's Day flower? They take me to the back and pull it. Anyway, it just doesn't get any better. I take that home. My wife gets up the next morning. I've got the Charlie Brown-looking Christmas tree, Mother's Day, you know. And let me just tell you, that didn't help the situation, guys, at all. So for the last 19 years, Mother's Day has been a big deal at our house, okay? Now, what's the point? The point is this. My wife felt, and rightly so, overlooked and slighted by someone who loved her very much. It was unintentional. I I didn't intend to do that. But because of certain circumstances that were at play, here's someone that felt completely overlooked on a very special and important day. My wife, her very first Mother's Day, I blew it. Now, as we go to Acts chapter 6, we're going to read verse 1. We're going to walk through seven verses. But in verse 1, you're going to see right away, there was a certain group of people in the early church that felt overlooked. They had been slighted by the rest of the church. Now, we don't know for sure if it was intentional or if it was unintentional. We don't know. But there's some division and there's some murmuring that goes on in the church because there's a particular group that feels completely overlooked. Now, read with me. I'm just going to read verse 1, and then we're going to walk through the rest of the verse. It says this. Now, at this time, when the disciples were increasing, the church is growing. If you've been with us, you've been reading through Acts, you know that the church is booming. It's now probably somewhere around 20,000 people that make up the early church, if you can believe that. All the challenges and issues that go with a church of 20,000 people and a young church. The disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose. On the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. And we'll explain all that in a minute. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So here you have a particular group in the early church that that completely felt slighted. And the word is overlooked. They were forgotten, if you will. Either intentionally, unintentionally, we don't know. Now, if you've been reading along with us and you've been studying along, you know, again, the church is thriving. The the promise of Jesus is being fulfilled right before our very eyes in Acts 6. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he's doing that, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But for the last few chapters, it's as if hell has been coming against the church, remember? 
There's been great persecution that's been coming against the church. The, the religious leaders have been locking up the disciples and the apostles, and they've been wanting to kill the disciples and the apostles. There's been great persecution. There's been inward deception that's been coming against the church. Ananias and Sapphira, their very own, were deceiving and were living out hypocrisy. And now you continue on and you see, we're going to see in Acts chapter 6, there were at least two more threats that the enemy comes against the church. You do know that then and even now we have a very real enemy that is continually coming against the strength and the maturity and the health and the unity of the church. Always. Always. So here in the early church, this church is thriving. They're reaching people by the thousands. In the following chapters, the church is about to go global. They're about to go outside the Jewish realm into the Gentile, non-Jewish realm. And the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth from this church. So you can literally see the enemy is coming against the church, trying to stop and hamper and hinder the advancement from the church now. In just these few verses, you see two threats come against the church. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what they are, and we're going to look at these. The first threat is the threat of division. There is a striking risk that if it's not handled well, there's going to be major division and disunity within the early church, which threatens to greatly weaken the church. The second threat, we'll get there in just a few minutes, is the threat of distraction. The leaders and the church are tempted to become distracted from what is primary and what is the main thing, and the apostles are threatened to be pulled into other ministries that are simply not their calling. So these threats come against the church. Now, before we just go over this verse again, let me set up the, the, what's going on specifically here. So come next to, and there's the church is 20,000 people. It's massive. It's growing, all the challenges, but it's primarily Jewish in its makeup at this point. Hasn't gone out to the Gentile world yet. Even within the Jewish groups, there are at least two distinct groups of Jews. There are what are called the Hebraic Jews, the native Jews, who they've kind of grown up in Israel. They speak Aramaic, which is the derivative of Hebrew. Their, their culture is more Hebrew, but they're Jewish. Then you have the Jews that have come to Jerusalem from the diaspora. They've come from other nations, so they have a little bit different culture. They probably speak a different language. They have different distinctives about them. So you've got these two groups within the church. They're one in Christ. They're saved by the same gospel. They're united under the Spirit of God. But they're in the church and there becomes a little bit of dissension or disunity between these two groups. Now, with all that, let's read verse 1 again. And it says, now at that time, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. Now you can circle that word complaint. This complaint arises between the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Threat number one is this. There's a threat of serious division here in the early church. Either intentionally or unintentionally, the Bible doesn't clearly tell us, but there is a particular group in the church that feels like they've been treated unfairly. Things aren't going the way they desire them to go. They feel as though they have been overlooked. Maybe legitimate, we don't know. But there's a group in the church that's feeling slighted. 
Now you have to remember specifically Judaism for years and years and years throughout the Old Testament. Judaism gave very clear instruction on how widows were to be cared for by the larger community. This practice was now carried over into the church. So when it comes to this ministry of caring for widows, which was very important in the life of the church. The, the church has now taken that on, but there's a group that feels like, man, you're just not treating us right. You're even giving preference, maybe, to this other group, the, the native Jews who have been here, and they speak the same language and the same culture, but us, we feel like we are being slighted in the church. And the response, now watch this, the response is very subtle, but in verse 1, you see the word complaint. A complaint arose. You want to circle that word in your Bible. The word complaint literally means this. It means a murmuring. Don't you hate that word? Murmuring. Murmuring. You're not going to say that again, are you, Pastor Mike? Murmuring. All right, it's just, just an icky word. And it's more than even that. The word literally as it's used here means a murmuring, a muttering, secret displeasure. In other words, the murmuring that was going on was not taken to the appropriate leaders. It was not, it was not spoken in a way for it to be dealt with. It wasn't, man, we've got a problem, let's see what we can do. It became this secret mumbling or mur murmuring, if you will, in the back room. It was subtle. It wasn't highly verbal in the sense that it wasn't, it wasn't public. It was just maybe subtle in conversations that came up. Or maybe in life group it would slightly come up here or there. But it was this secret murmuring of displeasure. Something was wrong. Now, what is the danger? What was the danger here in the early church? And what is it even in the danger for us 2,000 years later that something like this can become highly divisive? Let me give you a couple dangers. Number one is this. Secret grumblers murmuring. Secret grumblers group together and threaten church-wide unity. Everybody okay? Here's what that means. So... Intentionally or unintentionally, a particular group feels slighted. They feel like they've been treated wrongly. And the Bible seems to indicate that they begin to group together and it began to threaten the unity of the entire church. In other words, somehow, someway, in our fallenness, when we're hurt or when something doesn't line up maybe with the way we want it to work out. And let me come back to that. Caveat, parenthetical, ready? Every church has issues. Amen? Oh, God. Every church has challenges and problems, right? Every church. You know why? Because we're made up of broken people. We're made up of less than perfect leaders, less than perfect members. Every church has issues. If you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up, right? Here's a church that has a legitimate issue, but here's what the pattern seems to begin to be. There was murmuring. Instead of tackling the issue and coming after the issue, those that had problems seemed to begin to group up together. There seems to be a tendency among us when we are hurt or when we are effective, either justifiably or unjustifiably, those that are murmuring tend to 
flock together and they can threaten the entire life and health of a church family. Right? So that's what seems to be happening here. This group of grumblers is flocking together. Now, remember, we all, we all tend to do that. We have a tendency to do that. Uh, we have a tendency, and let, let me point this out, one of, the, one of the threats of the enemies is the enemy in a church like ours, the, the church is to be made up of people who have different preferences, different tastes, different backgrounds, different cultures. Man, the church is to be made up of a lot of different and unique people, and that's a good thing. But when the enemy is really good at maybe pulling out some distinctives that we have and causing disunity from less important distinctives... In other words, the fact that they were Hellenistic Jews instead of part of the church, that was secondary, that was less important. But they began to group together. They had a grievance, they found a common bond, and they united. And I'll just tell you, all of us have maybe seen something like that in churches, and it can cause devastating effects. I'll even use this as an example, and, and I hope no one gets their feelings hurt. I'll just use it as an example. Many, many years ago at this church, many years ago, when we were here, there was a particular group that felt like they had been slighted and felt like they had been offended, either rightly or wrongly, uh, and it was a group of homeschoolers. And nothing against homeschooling. I've homeschooled, a public school, private school. That's not even the point. But they felt like they had been slighted, and pretty soon all the homeschoolers began to kind of flock together and began to be a little disjointed, disunifying group within the church. And the problem was they held out the identity of being a homeschooler as more important than their identity of Jesus follower and member of the church family. And that could become a problem. Within the greater church. And that's what was happening here. Listen, we can all tend to do that. We can tend to draw lines between Sunday school or small groups. Well, I like traditional. I like contemporary. I like choruses better. I like hymns better. And the enemy excels at finding distinctives that are less important and causing divisions around those distinctives or those differences or those preferences, especially when people feel hurt or overlooked or slighted. Paul says, Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, he says this, and this is so good to operate within a church. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Talking about how we operate within the church. Listen, we need patience with one another because we unintentionally hurt one another. We unintentionally overlook one another or slight one another. He says with patience, showing tolerance. And don't, don't place the worldly view of tolerance there. It's not tolerance for sin. That's not what that is. But it's an understanding that I may have differences from you. You may have preferences that are different from me. I may like this type of music. You may like that type of music. I may like this particular type of grouping or this, this style or this what, whatever those are. But my allegiance to Christ and the unity we have in the spirit of Jesus Christ is greater than any of those preferences we might have. Did you hear that? So Paul says this. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let me ask you a question. Whose responsibility is 
the unity of the church. Every single one of us. This church is your family and you call this your church home and you are a member of this church. Paul says it is the responsibility of every one of us to be diligent. That means make every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit. Watch this. He doesn't say go find unity. He didn't say create unity. Sometimes we think, well, man, i got to create unity. No, no, no. In Christ, we have unity. That's why he says fight to preserve the unity. Christ in you, Christ in me, the Spirit of God, the gospel that we share. We've been transformed. The Word of God, this mission that we have, unifies us and is greater than any distinctive or preference we might have within the church. So it's my job and your job to fight for that life truth, number one. I'll give you a few. Here's number one. Fighting to preserve the unity of the church is the responsibility of every member. Every one of us. It's our responsibility. Now let me just give another little parenthetical. I said this in the early service and it seemed to fit. I'm going off my notes here, but I know how it works. Somebody right now is thinking, there must be problems in the church. Pastor Mike's talking about unity. So I'm going to get an email probably tomorrow. Well, I don't know what's going on, but there must be big problems in the church. Uh Uh-uh. We're people. And I'm simply preaching Acts 6 as it comes along in the book of Acts. So don't anybody go out here and say, well, well, somebody's mad at somebody. Pastor Mike, man, he was on his soapbox. I think he was talking about me. Nope. Nobody in particular in mind. But all of us in mind. Right? All of us. So it continues on. He says, life truth number two. I'll give you another one. Our unity in Christ triumphs over all personal preferences or cultural differences. I mean, do you know how important it is to see that? Can I just be, let me give you another illustration. Do you know how many churches have sprung up in our area by groups of people who take a preference and say, well, if church is not going to be like this, then we're going to start our own little group and we're going to go start our own little thing over here rather than fighting and to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. So this responsibility of all of us, there are preferences I have, there's backgrounds I have, there's things I like, but they are lesser. And I in humility can die to some of those. Here's my banner that I'm under and the banner you're under. I'm a follower of Christ, committed to the body of Christ, saved by the blood of the Lamb. I have a mission worth dying for. And the other things we want to murmur about, we can push to the side now. That does not mean that legitimate problems don't need to be dealt with. They do. There is a right way and a wrong way to go about those. The disciples practiced the right way to deal with problems. So here's what they did. They, they, they moved to, to move to more uh, ways to solve the problems. Now, one of the issues were that the murmurs and the grumblings can group together. Let me give you a second danger that's coming out here in this chapter really quick. Secret grumbling can also undermine the authority of church leadership. You say, man, Pastor Mike, you're getting real personal this morning. What does that mean? Again, I'm coming straight from the passage. Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35 says this. Remember when they were doing the collection in the early church and Barnabas and others were bringing money and they were laying it at the, at the apostles' feet? Acts 4, 34 says this. For there's not a needy person among them they, they who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet, meaning under the direction of the apostles. 
And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now fast forward just a few weeks to Acts chapter 6. That distribution is taking place. And there's murmuring that rises up in the sense that we are displeased with it. No steps of action yet to solve it. And ultimately the murmuring is against the church leadership. There was a legitimate problem. Listen, I'm going to say this to help us. There was a legitimate problem that needed to be solved. There always are. Backroom grumbling never solves any problem. <laughs> Ever. These apostles were not perfect. They were God's appointed leaders for the good of the church. Here's your life truth number three. Persistent grumbling due to unresolved issues ultimately undermines the leadership of the church. And I'll just say on a personal note, I'm going to move on to the next point. I said this in the earlier service. My history of somewhere around 20 years in the church I've seen challenges, I've seen highs, I've seen lows. Listen, I've walked with families through death. I've walked through staff members with moral failure. Jennifer and I, I've been accused of being a heretic and a false teacher and all that. And some of you go, well, I'm not so. Anyway, let me me tell you something that absolutely drains the life out of leadership and drains the life out of a healthy church. It is persistent backroom murmuring that is never resolved. And the apostles here are so wise, they understand. We've caught wind of it, and they figure out, okay, let's see if we can solve the problem. Let's see if we can move toward helping the situation. Hebrews 13, 7, this sounds very self-serving, but I'll say this because Scripture says it for our good. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, an unwillingness to find a solution or an ongoing murmuring that's secretive just drains the life right out of a healthy church. But there are ways to deal with issues. You have eight men that serve you as elders that love this church dearly and pray passionately for this church and want to deal with every issue that we know how to help this church thrive. You have a group of deacons that are now the front lines and fighting for the unity of the church to take issues and say, how can we solve those issues and how can we fight for the unity of this church? There are ways, and here seems to be the biblical wisdom, ready? Saying the right thing at the right time to the right person is always right. The unnecessary thing at the unnecessary time to the completely unnecessary person is never helpful in the life of a church. But there is a way to solve issues. So the passage goes on. All right, I know that's heavy. Everybody okay? Take a breath. <gasps> okay, good. So there was a threat. There was a threat of division or disunity in the church, and the apostles recognize it. And they want to deal with it. Verse 2. You say, Pastor Mike, that was all just verse 1. Good night. Hang on. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples. They bring the church together. They know there's an issue. It's kind of like a maybe it was a Sunday morning service. Maybe it was a family meeting. That's the reason we have things like that. So they say they knew there was an issue. And they said this. It is not desirable for us. 
to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And the disciples of the early apostles here, they recognize there's an issue at hand. There's a threat now. First threat was division. The second threat is now distraction. They wisely recognize that in their leadership that they can begin to chase important things in the church, but for them, their calling was to something, their calling was to something specific. And they can't get distracted by things they've not been called to. They say, it's not desirable. It's not fitting. It's not appropriate. If that happens, here's what they say. John may stand up. Peter, one of them, I don't know. They say, listen, this is a legitimate issue. We want to solve this problem. People are being overlooked. We don't want that. But it is not healthy for us to be the ones who pursue that. If we do that, they say, verse 2, then the word of God will be neglected in the life of the church. And the word neglect there is very strong. It means to leave behind, to forsake. They said, listen, if we say yes to every challenge that's out there, and if we're the ones who take on every challenge, then something is going to get neglected. In your life, in my life, you know in the economy of time, to say yes to one thing is to say no to something else, right? So the early apostles say, look, this is important, it's vital, but we can't take, we can't get distracted from our primary calling. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. High calling for leaders in the church. Spirit of wisdom, high calling, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now it's important to note here, the apostles in no way ever say that the ministry of caring for widows, for example, or the ministry of, you fill in the blank, whatever it is, is of lesser importance in the church. They never say that. They clearly hold out this is important in the life of our church, and you can pick whatever ministry that is. But then they come back and say, but for us... Those in leadership, we have a primary calling that we must fulfill or the church will not be healthy. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles recognized for the church to be healthy and the, hurt, the church to prosper, they could not get distracted from what was good, what was important, but was not their calling. God had graced the early church with these men and they realized their primary calling was the teaching and the preaching and the studying and the guarding the purity of anyone else who was assigned that teaching role in the life of the church. And they realized we cannot neglect that calling. So listen, you see how practical that is even for us? Now, obviously, we don't have apostles today. We believe that generation died off here with these apostles of Christ. This role becomes, if you will, in the church, the role of elder slash pastor, which is what we have here. Again, you have seven men that serve in the role of elder. And I want you to know, I know these men, and we have an absolute commitment, and we ask your prayers and your encouragement and your support in this. We recognize God has given us a primary calling to make sure in this body that the Word of God is never neglected. 
And that the ministry of prayer is never neglected from this pulpit, from this platform here or in Johnson City, from any study group or classroom from where the word might be taught, any life group where the word might be discussed, any children's ministry, any family discipleship plan, anything that comes out from this church is true to the living word of God. Because we are convinced it is the Word of God that transforms lives. It is the truth of Scripture by which we grow. And we have been given the primary calling of guarding that in the life of this local church. So you know how you can help your elders? Pray for your elders that we would not be distracted. Because we, none of us benefit when the Word of God is neglected, Right? But when the word of God is held at the center and the name of Christ is held at the center, the church thrives. So life truth number four is this one. The church advances when leaders prioritize prayer and the ministry of the word. If you've been a part of this church for any amount of time or maybe you're new to this church, I'll just say this. You have every reason to have concern. You have every reason to have an appropriate discussion with someone if you ever sense that this church has begun to neglect the ministry of the word or prayer. Because as a church, that is to be primary in what we do as a people. Paul says this, Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. For the equipping of the saints. It is our role to equip the saints. What for? Now this is back to you now. So the church is designed where the the leaders recognize our primary calling. And then back to the the body of Christ. The members of the church. He says for Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. For the work of service. That word service means ministry. In other words, there are ministries of calling to teach and preach. But there are ministries throughout the church. If you are here and you are a member of this church, you have a ministry. Hello, I heard crickets. Ready? Let's try that again. If you're here and you're part of this church and you're a member, it's not just those that are called to ministry. We all have a ministry in the life of the church. Amen? All of us. Paul says the church is designed to be healthy. Christ is the head. He's the leader. The church is gifted with with men who can teach the word of God for the equipping of the saints. And then the saints are functioning within that body and serving one another and meeting needs and caring for one another. and All the things that the life of the church does. One ministry is not to be held out as more important than the other. It's an issue of calling. And when we are serving as God has called us to do, Paul says this, end of the verse, verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ. Man, the church grows. And the church is healthy. And the church is thriving. In so many ways, we see that happening here over and over. We want more of that, of where we fulfill our calling. The members of the church are active and they're engaged with one another. They're serving one another. They're meeting needs and they're caring and they're visiting and they're leading. I'm doing all these things that a healthy church does. Because what's this? It's a gospel issue. And it's a name of Christ issue. Un. Healthy churches that are out of balance are not what led well or the members are merely spectators. The world looks at that and sees a weak, anemic, sick church. And that is what is intended to be the visible gospel to the world. The gospel is spoken and the gospel is seen through the body of Christ. It's a gospel issue. 
Jesus, help us lead well. Jesus, help us serve well. Help us invest in one another well. Life truth number five is this. The church advances when every member recognizes and carries out their ministry to one another. Early church in Acts recognizes this. I'll just read the end of the passage. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. You'll hear about Stephen more next week. Full of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paremus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, all these within the church, and they found out quickly that the problem that faced the church, the solution was right there in the church as well. Took a little organization, took some prayer, took some leadership, took some folks rising up to say, yes, I'll fulfill that post. Now, this was an organized role, evidently. Some want to say, was this the early deacons? And it seems to at least be a precursor to deacons. We as a church have deacons that serve you and serve well. There's more definition given to that in 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 3. But let me just end with this. And here's something that's really a challenge and a burden for me. One of the things you see here is a healthy church, a church that was threatened. They were threatened with disunity. We can all relate to that. They were threatened with distraction. And sometimes I think we as pastors, we can do a great disservice, and I don't ever want to do this, when we speak only of a certain group of people that are called to ministry. I have a particular calling. The elders in this church have a particular calling, but I want you to know that as you live out your calling and you exercise your gifts and you build up the body here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church, your part is just as vital for the health of this church as mine. When we are serving, when we are serving children, when we're greeting guests, when we're organizing teams, when we're cooking meals, when we're visiting the sick, when we're caring for widows, when we're distributing food, when we're answering phones, keeping kids, mowing lawns, grieving with, encouraging, praying over, teaching, encouraging, sharing scripture, being present in times of sickness, on and on and on and on and on. The body builds one another up. And one of the things I love about our church is to watch that happen. Sometimes it's in an organized role like the deacons, maybe a life group leader, whatever the case is. But often it's simple and spontaneous as we connect with one another and we engage with one another in our life groups. Man, I'm praying. I'm meeting needs. We're keeping your kids. We're serving food. We're praying. We're encouraging. We're admonishing in Scripture. We are building one another up. You have that calling. I have that calling. And the church grows and the church thrives as every member is engaged in the lives of the other brothers and sisters in Christ. Pushing back division, pushing back murmuring, learning to deal with problems which will arise in a healthy way. Fighting for the unity of the body and saying, man, that's my church home. I'm plugging in. I'm serving my brothers and sisters. I'm praying for my leaders. And you say, what's the outcome? What happens? Well, verse 7, 6 and 7, and we'll be done. And they brought these men before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading. I love that. Ministry of that church continued to spread. Into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. The word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Even a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The ministry of that church was unstoppable. God, give us that year. 
Give us that here. Continue to give us that here. Now I'll close with this final illustration. But Lord, make sure, keep, keep us from those threats. I'm going to ask the team to come on up and just begin to play. Acts chapter 6, that reminds us there are some threats that sneak in. And we've got to be careful. They may look subtle. may look unimportant. But remember, small things can cause devastating results. I'll close with this illustration and we're done. I, I like history. I really like space-related history. Many of you know the story of the Apollo 13 spacecraft. If you know anything about this, maybe you saw the movie Apollo 13. That was the orbiter that was launched from the earth, and it was to circle the moon and then land on the surface of the moon. If you know anything about the story, it didn't make it. Millions of dollars spent on the orbiter, millions of dollars spent on the training of these astronauts, the top astronauts, top technology. Everything's going just as it's supposed to be, but... They didn't make it to the moon as they intended. And NASA reported shortly after that that in the midst of all that training, all that technology, all that manpower, what caused the mission to fail was a little wire that cost 50 cents. (laughs) The point is the enemy can come at us with visible outward things to cause us stumbling. But sometimes it's the little, little episodes of murmuring Or it can be the little things that distract us from what matters most. And God, help us to fight for the unity of this body for Jesus' sake. And for the name of the gospel to continue to advance. Would you bow your heads for just a minute? I want you to take a minute right there in your seat. We're going to stand and sing with our team in just a moment. But I, I just pray you'd allow the Spirit of God to do work in your heart right now. I don't know what all's going on in your mind. I, I don't know where all you land with this, but I'm going to trust God to use His Word in your life. Maybe just, maybe just think about some questions like this. Because of Jesus in us, are, are you personally fighting to preserve the unity of the body? Are there some relationships and conversations that maybe you need to have rather than murmuring about someone or something? Maybe there's... Right thing to the right person at the right time is always right. Maybe, maybe you're a secret grumbler. That's true this morning. Maybe the Spirit of God's convicted you and said, Lord, forgive me for that. There's a right course of action. Help me to be wise and loving in this. Do you see leadership as a gift or a reason to complain and to push up against in the church? Are you recognizing your calling? Are are you a spectator? Are you engaged in the life of the church using your gifts and engaging in community and serving one another at this body as a calling God has given you? Now the last thing we want to do is walk out of here and say, well, you know, I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do better. That's moralism. Here it is. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is alive in you, child of God. The only way these things change is not try harder, do more. It's God, forgive me. I repent of that. And by the power of Jesus in me, Lord, as I walk with you in your strength, help me to build up this body. Help me to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ for Jesus' sake. Lord, we love you. Build your church for your glory. We ask it in your name. Amen. Church, let's sing together. Will you stand as our team leads us? this morning.